call Ruth Hernandez, and I go, we're back. <laughs> and then I was telling somebody else, what did I tell them something about? I don't know, that we're all back and we're raring to go. It seems like, uh, it seems like it's been a long summer, and then at the same time, it seems like it's been a short summer. It seems like we were just together, but it's so nice to be back. Um, and I just pray, I just, we've been praying for you guys, and um, we just pray that the Lord will just really bless you. How do you love the covers of the book? Isn't it beautiful? It's funny, Karen and I work really hard. Um, we start in January for the study that we have in the fall. And um, we're so excited when we get it done. We're just like, ah, oh, thank you, Lord. You, you helped us get it done, and we're done. And then the artist comes along, and he puts the cover on it. And I saw it this year, and I just go, oh. I love it. I absolutely love the cover. And I was telling the ladies, it's kind of like when we have our um, potlucks. You know, you'll go and you'll have a potluck. We'll go to the potluck. And you'll see dishes and somebody say, this dish is so good. And you look at it and you just go, really? And you just go, and you don't try it because it looks ugly, right? I mean, I, I know I'm not the only one. But I told our ladies, it's the same thing with our books. When the Lord just gives us a beautiful cover, it's just, when you're in the bookstore and you're looking at books, if the book looks really ugly or it's really dated, you just, yeah, I'm not going to read that. But when it's a cover, it's beautiful. So I just had to thank our graphic artist over and over and over again because I, I love the cover. I, I just thought it turned out beautiful. But that's not why we're here. Let's get study. <laughs> Let's get into the study. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, Lord. And Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and your truth. Lord, we thank you for the women that you have placed in your word so that we can learn from these women, that we can just reap all the benefits, whether um, it's their mistakes, whether it's the way in which they just radiated you, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that we will just grasp all that you want to give to us. And Lord, I just pray that as these ladies are in their discussion groups, Lord, the, the pearls of wisdom that will come from each of the women if they will just sit and take the time to listen to one another. Lord, what you give to them is precious. It is precious because your Holy Spirit ministers to each one of them. And Lord, as we look at the introduction tonight, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would understand the depth of your wisdom that you desire to pour out to us, Lord. Father, cause each woman to now sit quietly and hear what you have to say to them. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak forth and your Holy Spirit would have free access as myself being just the vessel, that your Holy Spirit would have free access through me as well as the listeners, Lord. We thank you for being present in our life. We thank you that you come and you make your abode in us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So this year, obviously, we're going to be studying lessons learned from the women of the Old Testament. But before we get started, we I want to look at, just to give you a little bit understanding of their lifestyle, their customs, and their culture. So let's begin with the women in God's creative plan. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, it says, And Adam gave names to all cattle and the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helpmate for him. And can you imagine Adam? I mean, he was a brilliant man. Can you imagine trying to name every animal on this planet? 
I mean, I can't even think of the names of our books sometimes. And yet here he is naming each animal. And I can picture him naming the animals and the male and the female, the male and the female, the male giraffe, the female giraffe, you know, the chimpanzees. He's going through all of them. And then there's not a female for him. And you know he must have understood that and realized that. Um, in Genesis 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. It tells us in Proverbs, 4, uh, Proverbs 19, verse 14, Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And it's interesting how God allowed Adam to realize that he was incomplete as he named the different animals and saw that they had a companion, but he didn't. Look what happens in Genesis 2, verses 20. And And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto him. Adam immediately recognized an intimate connection with Eve. Listen to his words in Genesis uh, 2, verse 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And I love the way my husband said, Whoa, men. <laughs> he liked that idea. <laughs> um, because she was taken from man. The woman being part of man's innermost being holds an intimate relationship to man. And really, when you think about a husband and wife, it is the closest and most intimate relationship two individuals will share. You have an intimate relationship with your children. You have an intimate relationship with your girlfriends. But it's nothing like the intimate relationship that you share, that a husband and wife share with one another. One commentator stated, the rib being symbolic, taken from the place nearest to Adam's heart, indicating the close relationship of a man and a woman. Man and woman were made for each other. Woman is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. A woman is the feminine of man. The woman is the counterpart and the helper of man. Listen to Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 12. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband uh, safely trusts in her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Who can find a virtuous woman? This is what God has intended for every married woman that we be a virtuous woman, that we will be that woman that does him good and not evil all the days of her life. This is what a helpmeet is all about. In Proverbs 12, verse 4, it says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Some of us are thorns, aren't we? God intended that we be a crown to our husband. She is not only man's helper, but she is his completion. Eve was Adam's second self. Different from him in sex and physical stature, obviously, uh, but not in nature. Prior, priority of creation gave Adam headship, not superiority. Man was incomplete without woman. Man is still incomplete without woman unless he has the gift of celibacy and vice versa. After the creation of woman, look how God ordains a divine institution in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That's that intimate relationship that God has so ordained and so blessed in marriage. 
We also see an inseparable unity and fellowship of man and woman in the institution of marriage. I remember when I was uh, first married, I would grab Xavier on the side and I said, we got the buddy system. We have the buddy system. We are one. God has called us to be one. As men and women seek to live according to God's standards, our lives are blessed. In marriage, we become one, completing one another, not competing with one another, but we are to complete one another. This is God's intended place for woman. Both men and women um, were endowed for equality, for the mutual interdependent upon one another. We are interdependent. Xavier has qualities that I will never have. Never. And I have qualities that he will never have. And we complete one another. This is what God intended in that intimate partnership. Now, uh, let's move on to the woman and how the fall affected her. Throughout history, man, because of pride, ignorance, or moral um, perversion, has treated women inferior and has enslaved and degraded her. And you think, how did we get to that? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6, 13, and 16 tell us, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband uh, with her, and he did eat. And the Lord said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow uh, and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I think when Eve yielded to that first temptation, that first sin, she never could have imagined the far-reaching effect her, her decision would make on all of mankind. And it literally has. You can never turn back. We can never go back. But the far-reaching effect of what that sin did and what and where it took woman to is just awful when you think about it. Sin both in the man and the woman have been universally the cause of the shameful treatment that women are experiencing even today. Uh, We will learn Israel never entirely lost uh, the original revelation of what God intended for the woman. Israel held women in high esteem, honor, and affection, but she never again gained that place that God intended for her because of sin, because of the fall. Uh, the, uh, the capacity of the woman with God's people was a position contrast to the heathen nations. Her liberties were greater, her employments more varied and important, her social standing more respectful and commanding. Let me give you a few examples. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, it tells us, Honor your father and your mother. This commandment required children to honor uh, their mother equally with their father. Another example, Sarah Sarah, Abraham's wife, held a position of favor and authority in her husband's household. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was not less influential than her husband and was um, evidently the stronger personality. We also learn in Genesis 29, verse 17, uh, Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. Rachel won uh, from Jacob a love that accepted her as an equal in the companionship and counsel of family life. Miriam and Deborah were prophetess and poets. Miriam, after crossing the Red Sea with the children of Israel, it tells us in Exodus 15, verse 20, that Miriam the prophetess, 
the sister of Aaron took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. She led the women. Deborah was not only a poet, but also a woman of authority. In Judges chapter 4, verse 8, Barak said unto her, If thou wilt not go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And what was happening at this time in Israel's history is Sesra, a commander of a mighty force, was coming against them. And Barak told Deborah, If you go, I'll go. But if you don't go... I'm not going to go. We need your commanding influence. What an amazing woman she must have been. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it speaks how no person in Israel surpassed Hannah, the mother of Samuel, in intelligence, in beauty, in intensity of feeling and expression of religious devotion, and she was a poet as well. 1 Samuel 25 tells of an incredible woman by the name of Abigail, who through her wise counsel prevented a king or the future king of Israel, King David, from killing innocent people and tarnishing his name. What wise women that she would stand before King David and minister wise counsel to him. Second Chronicles chapter 34 verses 22 tells us of Huldah, who was sought by kings and high priests for her counsel. First Kings chapter 2 verse 19, we see amazing honor shown by King Solomon to his mother Bathsheba. Also in Revelations chapter 2.20 tells of Jezebel, a self-styled prophetess, a woman who obtained power, which she used for cruel and merciless wickedness. She murdered, led God's people into idolatry, and her daughter walked in her mother's footsteps, and she became even worse. In Israel, mothers were considered the important and determining factor. Through the scripture, Israel is warned to regard and to listen to the mothers. Proverbs 6, verse 20 says, My son, keep thy father's commandments and forsake not the law of thy mother. In Proverbs 30, verse 17, it says, The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. Strong warnings about heeding what your mothers have to say. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Jochebed, the mother of Moses, left such an impression as to safeguard him from the corruption of Pharaoh's Egyptian court. Listen to Moses' words in Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughters, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. He looked for the reward. Wow. She didn't have him very long, but she instructed, she ministered, she shared. I can just picture her just whispering God's word into Moses' little infant ears. And what was true then is true today. A mother's influence towards her children is powerful. We have no idea how powerful, as mothers that are sitting in this room today, how powerful your influence is to your children. As a young mother, I will never forget a statement that came across my ears uh, when my children were um, infants. And the statement was, Christianity is one generation away from extinction. And as I heard those words, the burden that I felt to minister to my children, to be an example to my children of God's word, and to disciple my children 
in God's word weighed heavy upon my heart. I'll never forget. I need to brainwash them. I need to minister, always minister, taking advantage of every opportunity. As parents, we are to continually disciple our children. God is very clear. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, it tells us, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Ladies, it begins with us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. It begins with you. And then he goes on, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do your children realize how important the word of God is? Do they see a mother that when she is grieved, when she is hurting, when she has nowhere to turn, she can turn to God's word? Do they see that in your life? Because if they don't see it, how are they going to follow your example? If you don't have it first, we can't give what we do not have. Your influence is powerful. We must instruct our children. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. We must train them. If you don't, ladies, someone else will. Especially if your children are in the public schools. If you're not teaching and training your children, someone else will. I, today, can look at my daughter, and I can see her training and teaching her children. I look at Shailee. And I look at Anique as she is teaching and training her children. I look at Karen as she has trained her children. Zeph is now training and teaching his daughter. I look at Mario's daughters, how they are walking with God. They are reaping the benefit. And let me tell you, it doesn't always work out that way. I prayed and prayed and prayed for years for my son to walk with God. Many of you prayed with me as he was out in the world. But we don't give up. We don't give in. We take advantage of every opportunity. And it doesn't stop because they're adults. It doesn't stop because I'm a grandma. I continue to minister to my daughter. I continue to minister to my grandchildren. We never give up. We never give in. Um, Next, not only the importance, influence of a mom, but the women concerning social equality according to God's word. In Deuteronomy 16, verses 11 and 14, it says, Men and women feasted together without restrictions, unlike the heathen cultures. In Genesis 12, verses 11 and 12, uh, 14, it tells us, Women could appear unveiled, as Sarah did, in the court of Egypt. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, 13, Hannah appeared in public with uncovered face as she prayed for a child. Veils were a non-Jewish custom. It actually came from the Koran. But the Gentile women were subject to inferior and degrading conditions. Greek philosophers' uh, views, such as Aristotle, considered women inferior, being intermediate between free men and slaves. So he held them right there in that position. Socrates held women like depreciation. Wow, what a great guy, huh? Uh, Plato advocated community of wives, and these were considered the great thinkers of their day. I told Karen, more like the great stinkers of their day. (laughs) You know, if you actually study some of the way these people thought and lived, no thank you. No thank you. 
Some of these views were practiced in Rome. Some saw marriage as only as a public duty. More honor was shown to upper-class clients than they were to wives. Unlike that of Israel, where the women were considered a helper to her husband, um, an intimate companion to their spouse. I never quite understood how uh, terrible women in other cultures were exposed to horrible conditions until United States got involved with the Middle East and all the things. And, and let's face it, we have become so much more educated to how the women are treated in the Middle East. I'll never forget when I was watching a news report um, last year, last summer, and it was during the overthrow of Gaddafi, and it was before he was overthrown, and there was a woman saying how Gaddafi's soldiers had raped her and this and that, and next thing you see, she is swooshed into a car and never heard of again. And then they go and they begin to tell you if a woman is raped, unless there's four witnesses and this and that, she, she's going to be stoned because she's been promiscuous. I'm just going, never stood a chance. This woman, I'm sure, died. I'm sure she was gone. I think about even today as we are hearing about honor killing um, with the Middle Eastern women in the United States because their daughters aren't living up to the standard that they, they, that they hold dear to them, then it's okay to murder their sisters or their daughters. I was stunned to find out how some of these women are treated. And um, I thought of the curse when God said, he shall rule over you. And I think of some of these cultures, they take it to a, such an extreme that you and I will really never, never be exposed to that extreme. But for some of these people in the Middle East, it's a way of life. I know that in Iran, it's against the law to wear makeup. Um, some friends of mine went to England last year. And as they were walking down a street, a Muslim man was walking and his wife was walking behind him. And the wind blew and caught her burqa, and it flew up, and you saw her legs. And when he saw that, he turned around, and he slapped her so hard. And the people around just gasped because they couldn't believe it. But for her, it was a way of life. We have no idea how bad. I think about, because we are living in the information age, I think about human trafficking today and how women are exposed to such vulgar lifestyle, prostitution. I don't know if any of you have ever read Amy Carmichael's book, but it talks about how she was so instrumental in saving so many little girls from temple prostitute. She just had such a burden for these little girls. So I just, I, I'm amazed and I'm appalled at what man can do to a woman. So contrary, so contrary to God, what God had intended. Next, the woman and marriage, uh, marriage laws in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, it was one husband, one wife. This was the divine ideal for man. In Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 20 tells us, the law of Moses protected the sanctity of marriage. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, kings were forbidden to multiply in wives. Concubines in Israel was a custom brought in from the Gentiles. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 3, tells us divorce was originally intended to protect the sanctity of wedlock. But you know how man turns things around. Man's pretty smart. And next thing you hear, you can divorce for this, you can divorce for that, you can divorce. Well, we've accepted those same rules today. We can divorce for anything. 
And in Genesis 24, verse 58, women had the freedom in choosing a husband, uh, not known anywhere else in, or in, um, in the surrounding nations. Jewish tradition declares that a girl, 12 and a half, had the right to give herself in marriage. She had the right. Uh, she also had the right to choose her husband if she wanted. Do you remember when um, uh, Abraham's servant came to get Rebecca? And the family said, do you want to go? Do you want to go with him? She wanted to go. It was her choice. Uh, Now look at the women concerning inheritance in the Old Testament. In Numbers 27, verses 1 through 8, the Mosaic law was that the father's estate, in case there was no sons, should pass to the daughters. In Numbers 36, there's verses 6 through 9, women were not allowed, however, to alienate the family inheritance by marrying outside their own tribe. Each tribe had to marry within their own tribe. In Numbers 7, verse 63, alien marriages were permissible only when the husband took the wife's family name. And in Genesis 31, verses 14 and 15, unmarried daughters were not provided for in their father's will. It was the responsibility of the eldest son to care for her if she was not married. Regarding a bride's dowry, it was like a payment that the husband would pay to the father for the loss of his daughter. Now, the women in relationship to domestic duties in the Old Testament, Hebrew women administered the affairs of the home with liberty unknown to other uh, surrounding nations. Her duties, more independent, they varied and were honorable. She was not the slave of her husband. Her outdoor uh, occupations were pleasant, healthful, and extensive. Uh, in Proverbs 31, verse 16, we learned that the scripture says she considers a field, buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She contributed to the family income. In Genesis 29, 6 and Exodus 29, 6, it tells women often tended to the flocks. In uh, Exodus 35, verse 26, and Proverbs 31, 19, women spun the wool, made the clothing for the family. And in Proverbs 31, verses 14 and 24, women also contributed to the household income by various duties such as needlework and weaving. In Proverbs 31, verse 20, women contributed to charity. They helped the poor. Uh, in Genesis 18, verse 6, women prepared the meals. In Judges 4, verse uh, 18, women were had the liberty to invite and receive guests. In 1 Samuel 9, 11, it says women drew the water for household use. In Genesis 24, verses 15 through women uh, through 20, women drew water for guests and even for the guests' animals at times. Now, the women in their dress and ornaments in Old Testament. We get an idea of what the normal dress attire is in Ruth chapter 3, verse 15. The dress of the woman was the modest and simple loose flowing robes, which entailed a mantle, which was a tunic, shawl, and a veil. But many times, as women do, we get kind of carried away. Um, And in Isaiah 3, the prophet reproves the women for prideful and excessive attire. Listen to the items of clothing these women wore. They wore anklets, calls, which were nets for their hair, pendants, bracelets, mufflers, which were long veils, headgear, ankle chains. These were chains connecting the two ankles together. 
sashes, perfumes, which were put in small jars and worn, perfume boxes, amulets, which were ornaments, rings, nose jewels, this was an ornament hanging from the forehead and touching the upper part of their nose, festive robes, mantles, this is an inner tunic and an outer tunic richly ornamented, shawls, purses, hand mirrors, fine linen, turbans, and veils. Now, can you picture somebody wearing all these things at one time? (laughs) How silly they must have looked. Um, um, We laugh at their attire, but how many times do we get carried away? We get caught up in our dress at at different points in our lives. Um, And don't get me wrong, I love to dress in fashion, but it's not anything that can consume us. Everything in moderation. Isaiah 3, verse 16, the prophet not only rebukes them for their excessive dress, he tells them to get back to the responsibility of taking care of their homes. Now, if you're wearing this attire, is there any way that you can take care of a vineyard? Is there any way that you can feed the camels and water them? Is there any way that you can plant a vineyard? I mean, you can't do any of those things dressed like that. And when I was looking at this, I was reminded of when I was a little girl, there used to be a program called um, Green Acres on, and it was on every week. And it was about a, a man who hated the city life, and he wanted to move to the country and live on a farm. I mean, that was his dire desire. And he was married. I don't know if some of you are very young. You don't remember Ava Gabor. But he was married in the, in, the, in the program. He was married to her. And she wore gowns all the time. And she reluctantly agreed to go live in the country on a farm. And they end up moving into the most broken down farmhouse you could ever imagine. And in every episode, there she is in that beautiful gown. <laughs> really, really ridiculous. And this is what I thought of when I thought of, the, that the, of these women that Isaiah is rebuking. But at this time in Israel's history, this manner of dress was the exception. Um, but don't kid yourself. There are churches today that if you don't come dressed to kill, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. I talked to a, a young lady who had been attending a church that unless you wore Blueberry, Parada, um, Gucci, or any other designer name that you can think of, if you weren't dressed in this manner, you really weren't accepted. And I thought, how sad. Um, I just thought, this is not what God intended. You know, I think about our retreat that we had last April. And the, the title of our retreat was Dressed to Kill. But it had nothing to do with fashion. It had everything to do with the armor of God um, and that we put it on every single day. If we only looked, uh, took the time to put on that armor, if we only realized how important that armor was. Um, so many times we'll put on this outfit and we'll look in the mirror and, do I look skinny? Does my rear look a little smaller than I should? Um, do I look taller? You know. And if we realize that Satan shoots holes in those beautiful, fashionable outfits, But he can't shoot holes in the armor of God. We need to know what is fashionable, what really works. Um, In Titus 2, verse 10, it says, Adorn yourself with the gospel. God is interested in our inward beauty, not our outward beauty. We want to take care of ourselves. Our body is the temple of God. We want to take care of ourselves. But we can't be consumed with it because God is interested with what's going on inside. 
And lastly, let's look at the woman and her religious devotion and service in the Old Testament. In Numbers uh, chapter 6, verse 2, woman, as well as men, took upon themselves the vow of a Nazarite, which was separating themselves from the Lord for whatever length of time, which consisted of sustaining from strong drink certain foods, no razors on their heads, and they were not permitted to come near a dead body. And a good example of that was John the Baptist. Women were granted theophanies, meaning visible uh, manifestations of God. You'll remember in Genesis 21, Hagar, when she had to leave and she was crossing the desert, she had no water. And she said, God, please don't let me see the death of my son. And she moved him under a tree. And she just, I'm sure she just cried her heart out. And God visited her and told her that her son would live. And he showed her um, um, some water that she could give to her son. In Judges 13, verse 3, Manoah's wife, who is Samson's mother, was visited by the angel of the Lord telling her that she would have a son. And what a son she had. But the angel of the Lord visited her. Um, In Exodus 38, verse 8, women were permitted to minister at the door of the sanctuary. Miriam, Deborah, and Haluda, all of them. Uh, ministered. Devout women, wives, mothers, and sisters have been influential in making a difference in spiritual matters. We learn in Ruth chapter 2, verses 15 and 8 through 18, that Ruth was a converted Moabite, and she was a royal ancestor of David and of Jesus. Her example of self-sacrificing moral beauty and religious devotion speaks for itself. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, You understand what an incredible woman she was. Proverbs 31 is a poem dedicated to King Lemuel's mother, a tribute to her domestic virtues and spiritual qualities. Unfortunately, there were women who were responsible for the decline of religious influence as well. We opened up with that when we saw what Eve did when she yielded to that temptation and the decay that immediately followed after. We learn in 1 Kings 11, verses 5 through 8, the women of heathen nations turned the heart of Solomon from a wise king to do evil in the sight of God. In 1 Kings 16, verses 31 and 32, Baal worship was introduced into Israel by Jezebel. In 2 Chronicles 22, verse 3, Baal worship was introduced into Judah by her daughter. Amazing, amazing responsibility that we have as women and what can happen. Um, God takes spiritual influence very serious. He's very serious about not having his people defiled or seduced. He warned in Exodus chapter 22, verse 18, you shall not permit a sorcerer to live. And we see because they did not keep that law that prior to the death of Saul, he went to a sorcerer and he asked information from her. The decline and overthrow of Judah and of Israel must be attributed in large measure to wicked, worldly, and idolatrous women. God has called the, women, the woman to be the counterpart of man, to be a source of encouragement to their devotion to God. This is only possible if we, as women of God, will follow hard after God, that we will learn of him, that we will study him, that we will be women of the word of God. Otherwise, it can't happen. To do less will only lead to taking our spouses away from the Lord. And yet... In the short years that I have walked with God, I have seen many women 
take their husbands away from the Lord. Take their husbands away from serving the Lord because of some selfishness in their life. I have seen women walk away from their marriage because they don't want to walk with God. Very, very, very sad. In this study, you will learn of those who left a legacy of love and devotion and those who wasted the potential that was given to them by God. In this study this year, it is our desire that you will come away with a greater desire to study and to follow our Lord and to learn from the examples left in the pages of God's word. And that you yourself would be examples to your families, to your loved ones, and to a lost and dying world in which we live. You know, last summer I had the opportunity to go to Columbia, and they asked me if I would teach on Proverbs 31. Let me tell you, I had never taught Proverbs 31. I had taught their principles that are found in Proverbs 31, but I had never taught it. I was afraid of Proverbs 31. Who can be a virtuous woman? But you know, what I walked away with when I did that study was that God has made that possible for every one of us if we will but yield to the principles found in God's word. He desires that every one of us be that virtuous woman. We think it's unattainable, and in our flesh it is. But if we will walk with him, if we will yield with him, we will be the women that God has called us to be. And this should be the desire of every woman here. This should be the desire of every Christian woman that we would desire to live his principles, to breathe his principles, to be the women that he's called us to be. Let's face it, we need it. We are living in the midst of a dark and perverted world today. It has never been so clear as it is today. We need God's word. We need to study his word. And in so doing, God will raise you up to be that woman that he needs. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, Lord, and we thank you for the power and the instruction of your word. Lord, I pray that as we study these women, that we would learn from their mistakes, from their faults, to the areas that they yielded, to the areas that they were so obedient. Lord, we desire that we would bear much fruit in your name. Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work in the women of Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, that as we look at the Deborahs, as we look at the Marys, as we look at the different women, Lord, that you would build us up and that we would be those mighty women that can make a difference in our families, in our communities, and in our country, Lord. Father, I just pray that you would raise up women that would choose to honor you, to love you, to be faithful to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, ladies.